Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, trying to curb COVID, what more needs to be done to stop the surge in cases? Getting tough on China, the House debates a Conservative motion calling for a new approach to relations with China. MPs will be here to discuss what a harder line looks like and the risks involved. The Minister of Innovation will join me to discuss his new bill to protect the privacy of Canadians. And Canada's Information Commissioner slams the RCMP and the Federal Minister of Public Safety over the RCMP's failure to comply with the law on access to information. But we'll begin tonight with the ongoing efforts to get control of a second wave of COVID-19. There were thousands of new positive cases, more of them reported in Canada again today. That included 1,249 new cases and 12 more deaths in Ontario. Quebec reporting its lowest number of new cases in two weeks, 982, and an additional 24 deaths. But hospitalizations are up, as is the case in a number of Canadian provinces. Manitoba, 270 new cases. It's hired private security officers to crack down on rule breakers. Saskatchewan has its second highest daily case total today with 240 and new restrictions were announced there as well. Today, the Prime Minister was asked whether another lockdown across the country is now inevitable. We will continue to work uh, with the provinces and public health authorities on, on uh, what needs to be done to get this uh, pandemic under control. But obviously, uh, what they're looking at in the Atlantic bubble, what they're looking at in the Arctic, uh, what they're looking at uh, in places like Alberta or Ontario, uh, differ greatly from one region to the next. And that's why the federal government is there to support Canadians, to support the provinces, and to work with the provinces as they make the decisions on how to flatten the curve in their region. Well, the surge in COVID-19 cases has reignited the debate over lockdowns in a number of provinces and who should decide when to impose them and on what basis. Rewa Dionenden is an epidemiologist sorry, at the University of Ottawa specializing in global health. Uh, Professor Dionenden, uh, good to speak with you again. How satisfied are you with the measures now being taken in province with provinces that have these surging cases? I'm not particularly satisfied because clearly they're not working, right? And we can base that on things like the reproduction number, the test positivity rate, and whether or not the hospitals are overflowing. And in many parts of the country, the hospitals are reaching capacity. So it looks like something more has to be done. There are raging debates when you talk about something more has to be done, raging debates in these provinces uh, about what the criteria should be for shuttering businesses and imposing uh, tighter restrictions. So uh, what do you look at now in terms of deciding what other restrictions are needed to bring this second wave under control? It's a tough question. First of all, this is not up to epidemiologists and doctors to decide. This is for the people to decide based upon whatever values they have chosen. So we look at some indicators, like, as I mentioned, the reproduction number and how many the percentage of tests that come back positive, but also is the healthcare system being overwhelmed? And we look at the opportunities for super spreading environments. They tend to be places where people cluster, like bars and restaurants and wedding banquets and karaoke bars, any place where people get together for reasons that aren't necessary. So if you can take those off the table, at least temporarily, you've got a good chance of, of short shortening transmission. Uh, that does raise the question of, you know, e even if you 
even if you do put measures in place, part of the problem here, isn't it, is that people just aren't following uh, the measures that are in place. Uh, they're choosing to ignore what's being asked of them and putting others at risk. That's exactly right. I'm fond of saying that public health is the art of the possible. And what's possible is dependent on what people will tolerate and go along with. So is it possible for people to voluntarily self-restrict their socialization? It's unclear. People have tried it and it's failed in some places and succeeded in others. Is it possible to compel them to self-restrict? Possibly, but that comes at a, a social and political cost. So it's a tough call. Um, but there are tools on the table we could use. I mean, there is the short-term lockdown, the circuit breaker. There is the suppression technique, a longer-term lockdown. There's a mitigation where we just, you know, deploy hand-washing and mask-wearing. Or there is a COVID-zero approach where we drive cases to an extreme minimum. All of these options are with us, including possibly saturation testing option where we just test everybody and quarantine the ones that test positive. So we have to decide as a people which solution we want, especially now that we've seen the vaccine. So we've seen that a solution is around the corner. We just have to find a way to wait out the long winter until the solution arrives. Prime Minister said again today these more restrictive measures, if they're implemented, are better left with provinces. He dismissed again the use of the federal government's emergency powers to impose any stricter measures. Uh, do you support that approach? It's a tough call. Uh, I think there's a role for the federal government here. At the very least, to start the process of a national conversation to choose the outcome that we're interested in. Is the goal here to save the healthcare system? Is the goal here to protect lives? Is the goal here to prevent long-term morbidity? What is the goal? And until we can all agree on that goal, it's, we're going to have this, this, this heterogeneous mosaic approach, which is not useful. The principles of containment have to be uniformly applied across the nation, and that means federal leadership. You, uh, you touched on it, uh, a lot of people pointing to vaccines and how that will help us turn a corner to get past the pandemic. Uh, do you share that confidence and optimism and how long do you believe it'll be before all Canadians can get a vaccine? Uh, what, what's the time frame we're looking at here? I'm very optimistic about these vaccines, extremely optimistic. We're going to have two or more viable candidates in the field sometime next year. So the two leading candidates, Pfizer and Moderna, have both applied or will soon apply for emergency use authorization in the USA, which means that in that country, they're going to have several million doses to deploy by the end of the year, probably. And so in the USA, they'll probably get most of their citizens having access by sometime in the spring. Here in Canada, I anticipate we're going to have access to it in the late Q1, possibly early Q2, and our healthcare workers and most vulnerable are getting it by next spring. So for the rest of this, end of next year is when we should expect full inoculation. All right, uh, Professor uh, Dionandon, always uh, good to talk to you. Thanks for your perspective again tonight. Thank you. House of Commons today debated a conservative motion calling on the Canadian government to take a tougher approach to China. That includes making a decision to ban Huawei from Canada's 5G networks within the next 30 days and to take action against Chinese influence and intimidation tactics in Canada. Mr. Speaker, when it comes to threats against Canadian citizens, our eyes have been wide open for years. Chinese Canadians have been subjected to intimidation, not just in Hong Kong, but here in Canada as well. At committee, immigration officials admitted they do not track nor do they try to stop Chinese agents posing as students, as tourists or workers. Why is the Prime Minister failing to protect Canadians that speak out against the Chinese Communist regime? Honourable Prime Minister. 
Mr. Speaker, Canada has among the best security agencies in the world, and the folks who work for our security agencies work every single day to keep Canadians safe. Not all of it appears in the newspapers. On the contrary, a lot of the work that is, is done uh, in important situations uh, is never heard of at all. But we will continue to ensure we're supporting our security agencies, uh, supporting uh, Canadians who speak up, and protecting all Canadians from foreign interference or influence. Uh, because we know that to be free in Canada is the best thing in the world. Well, what would a get-tough policy with China actually look like and what might be the risks? Let's bring in three members of Parliament to debate that. Rob Oliphant is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Michael Chong is the Foreign Affairs Critic for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Jack Harris is the Foreign Affairs Critic for the NDP. Good to see you all, gentlemen. Uh, Mr. Chong, let me start with you, uh, since it's your motion. Why are you setting a deadline for the government of 30 days to give us a decision to ban Huawei? Well, it's long past time for the government to make a decision on two issues. First, uh, on Huawei, and secondly, on a plan to counter Chinese foreign influence operations here in Canada. The government said uh, years ago that it was deliberating on whether uh, to allow Huawei in Canada's 5G network. Last year, uh, in May, the government indicated it would make a decision by October of 2019. Then in July, it said it would make a decision after October 2019. We're now a year, more than a year after October 2019, and still no decision. So it's long past time for them to make okay. a decision on Huawei. And on the issue of influence operations, the government has said for a year now that they are coming forward with a new framework, a new policy on China. No new policy on China uh, can be without a policy on how to counter these foreign influence operations. All right, let me come back to that piece, but let me stay with Huawei. Mr. Oliphant, uh, the government's been sitting on this decision for more than a year. Our Five Eyes allies have already moved against Huawei. What's the delay here? I wouldn't say there's a delay. What I said is there's a careful consideration of all the factors. That we want a, a, a robust policy that, it, that protects Canadians, that ensures that Canadian security and, and all our security interests are taken into account. We want to do that in conjunction, yes, with our allies, but we will have our own foreign policy. Can you comply with the with the timeline of the motion that says, you know, Canadians should have an answer in 30 days here? I don't think that Canadian security should have a deadline. And I think the Conservatives are playing politics on this, uh, that, that what we want to do is make sure that we have a robust, good set of policies, regardless of, of what potential company might want to do business in Canada. And we want to make sure we do that well. So so some, 30, so some people have suggested... This is arbitrary. Some, why not 21 days? Why not 41 days? Some, they, they can't explain why they came up with 30 days. It doesn't make any sense. Well, some people have suggested the decision's already made, uh, but the government uh, doesn't want to announce it for fear of angering China. Is that the case? Never. Uh, it, it, this idea that we are afraid of angering China is is... Ridiculous. Our number one priority is the safety and security of Canadians, including Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver, who are arbitrarily detained in China. Right. We want to make sure that we continue in every way to stand up for Canada and Canadian interests. And we've been doing that. All right. Jack uh, Harris, does, does the NDP, Mr. Harris, does the NDP share the urgency for getting a decision here on Huawei? 
Look, the uh, yeah, we're we're interested in seeing something happen. You know, the twenty, the thirty days is arbitrary. There's no question. But the amendment was as soon as possible. And then during question period, the government representative said, "Well, the decision will be made in due course." Well, that's where we are now. That's where we were were a year ago. Something has to happen. A lot of things have changed in the last year, and I think Canadians need to know where we're going on this. I believe the government does know what it's going to do, and it's not. Uh, it's just not saying so. All right, Mr. Chung, you talked about uh, you also want to hear from the government on uh, a plan to uh, end Chinese government operations of intimidating Canadians on Canadian soil. What specifically do you want the government to do? Well, we'd like them to take a look at what Australia has done. And Australia introduced legislation that strengthened enforcement, strengthened sanctions for those conducting these subversive influence operations on their soil. Uh, Australia also set up a coordinating office that's responsible for the government's overall strategy to counter these subversive activities and to also pursue specific cases where uh, wrongdoing is being perpetrated by Chinese agents. So those are the kinds of things we'd like to see. In addition, we'd like to see a, a foreign agent registry set up in Canada so that former politicians, former bureaucrats, who work on behalf of a foreign state or a state-controlled entity are required to register their contracts in the interest of transparency. Right, but I just want to address one thing here. It's got to be real this, quick here. The date, the, yeah, the date of 30 days is not arbitrary. The government has announced for a year now that it will be coming forward with a plan by the end of this fall with a new framework on China, a new policy on China. The fall ends on December 21st. This motion was written to... Uh, to be consistent with that timetable and no new framework on China can be without a decision on Huawei in Canada's 5G network. All right, Mr. Oliphant, what, what's the government doing to stop agents of the Chinese government from influencing or intimidating Canadians here on Canadian soil? Canada has a robust set of institutions which do this from the RCMP through CSIS to other agents who are ensuring that we do this. We, we, we are obviously having to be responsive to this uh, we complaints are investigated, and people are uh, are, are uh, always under uh, care and the concern of the government of Canada. That is the reality of the way things work. And there's no there's, there's no um, mistaking in the fact that Canada keeps a robust regime um, around security, and it's uh, we're not going to simply uh, cast aspersions on individuals. There are. Uh, we are a country of the rule of law, and we follow due process and do that carefully and uh, consistently, and, and we'll continue okay. to do that. Mr. Harris, what more should the government be doing to check Chinese influence in Canada? Well, I mean, there, there, what's lacking is a, a cohesive, coordinated approach. There's no single point of contact. People are getting the runaround. There was a 50-page report by Amnesty International uh, completed in, in March uh, outlining a whole suite of, uh, of things that should be done and could be done to protect Canadians from harassment and interference. And uh, government really hasn't put together a, a, that comprehensive plan to, that gives people any confidence. All right, uh, let's finish on this. Uh, we still have two Michaels, Mr. Chong, uh, Michael Chong, uh, being held in China. And there could be serious economic risks as well to taking a tougher line on China right now. Uh, how concerned are you about those risks? What role should those concerns play in how Canada moves next? Well, we're very concerned about the fate of the two Michaels, as well as the fate of Robert Schellenberg, who's on death row, and the fate of Hussein Jalil, who remains imprisoned in China. Uh, but we do know one thing, that the government's policy on China isn't working. 
And it's not working because the government has refused to stand up to the bullying and intimidation that the Chinese have sent our way. Uh, we believe that the only way to send a clear message to China that these kind of tactics won't work is by taking a stronger stand, and that's exactly why we presented this motion. All right, Mr. Oliphant, um, what about the risks of, of moving against China, especially now? I think our, uh, I, don't, I don't see any new risks. The reality is we have been strong, forthright, and determined with respect to uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Colbert. Nothing has changed in that. We will continue to speak out for human rights. We'll continue to speak out um, for the international uh, rules-based order and international or rule of law. We, we are consistent in, our, in our, both our concern and criticisms about China. That has not changed. What we don't want to do is get into political decisions around technology and security. Let's take the politics out of security decisions. Let's make sure we're doing good, intelligent, evidence-based decisions to make sure that, that Canadians are protected. Uh, Mr. Harris, how concerned should we be about retaliation from China? Well, I think uh, if we're looking at protecting our own citizens in our own country, I don't think that's uh, uh, a matter that would expect you would expect any retaliation whatsoever. But it's been suggested that uh, the reason that there has been so much activity within Canada is because there hasn't been much consequence and uh, is basically seen as a soft target for influence. Well, if we are going to respond to that, then we should respond to that and uh, send the message that uh, we don't we don't want this happening in our country. I don't think that that's the case for retaliation at all. All right, gentlemen, uh, thank you for your time on this tonight. Uh, we'll see how the vote goes. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Former Conservative leader Andrew Scheer has fired his sister-in-law from his constituency office. Scheer says he checked with the ethics commissioner before hiring her, but says following the rules may not have been enough. Scheer's wife, Jill, also worked for his sister-in-law's company, while the sister-in-law was employed by Scheer. It was also reported today that Scheer employed his sister while he was speaker, but that ended in 2012 after the House of Commons changed the rules to ban MPs from hiring their siblings. Federal government is proposing hefty fines for companies that fail to protect the information of Canadians or abuse that information. The new measures will help Canada's privacy protections get up to international standards. The legislation introduced today would force more transparency and control of personal information and Canadians and of Canadians rather and what companies are doing with it. Canadians who aren't satisfied with how their information is being handled can order it deleted uh, and destroyed. They'll also have the freedom to move uh, move that information from one organization to another in a secure manner. The bill would also give more powers to the privacy commissioner to force organizations to comply with the regulations and could order a company to stop collecting personal information altogether. Companies that don't comply face fines of up to 5% of global revenues or $25 million, whichever is greater. Navdeep Baines is Canada's Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry. He joins me now it's, uh, to discuss these proposed changes to the uh, protection of the privacy of Canadians. It's his bill uh, tabled in the House today. Minister Baines, good to see you again. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, let's start with why you've moved uh, to update the privacy protections for Canadians. Why are these changes and improved protections necessary now? It was long overdue. Uh, if you uh, recall, in around 20 years ago, we introduced PIPEDA, the first set of uh, legislation around privacy protection. Uh, and the world has changed significantly. Back then, social media wasn't as prevalent. Uh, in the Internet of Things was not as prevalent. And today, especially with COVID-19, more people are working online, are learning online, are accessing 
information online. And so it's critical that uh, they have more control over their data and that their privacy is protected. Uh, and we believe this is important to create trust online, which is not only good for Canadians and consumers, but it's also good for businesses as well who are becoming more and more prevalent in this data and digital driven economy to succeed going forward by using these platforms. Okay, so I touched on them at the top of our conversation here. What, what new powers uh, will this give Canadians over their personal information? What greater controls will they now have? Well, the first measure that we introduced is around consent. Uh, Canadians uh, will be able to provide their consent, uh, but the information that they receive uh, with regards to that has to be done in plain, simple language, not a 30-page illegal document that uh, no one understands. Uh, you also highlighted data portability, the ability to move your data from one entity to another, and, and the ability to request your data to be deleted or destroyed if uh, you no longer provide consent. And so that gives uh, consumers and Canadians a lot of control, uh, and that's uh, going to be critical going forward. So what, I mean, you talked about the ability to, to, to say, okay, I don't like what you're doing with my personal information. I want it deleted, want it destroyed. Uh, but what will the legislation allow them to do if they, for instance, if they have the complaint, if they think that they've somehow been wrong, maybe they've suffered uh, some financial damage because of the misuse of that information. What are the steps that Canadians can then take uh, to, to, to perhaps get con uh, compensation for damage that's been done? So there's a couple of components to that question. If, for example, Canadians feel that companies are not complying with the legislation, are not following the rules, they can follow up with the privacy commissioner who has the order making powers uh, and can compel uh, data to be deleted, uh, can compel that data uh, be destroyed if it's not uh, obtained properly through meaningful consent. And so those are important order making powers given to the privacy commissioner to support complaints that come forward from Canadians. Okay, so it, let, let me jump. Just so is it so is it exclusively complaint driven, or will the commissioner also be checking out what companies are doing to make sure they're complying? It's primarily driven based on the feedback the officer, the privacy commissioner, would receive from Canadians. So they have the ability to follow up with the privacy commissioner and say, look. Uh, we feel that uh, this company is not following the rules, is not compliant with the new privacy legislation. And then the uh, privacy commissioner can pursue that complaint and make uh, the request and, or demand that information, actually. And, they, and he has the order-making capability to do that. These fines of 5% of global revenues or $25 million, whichever is greatest, uh, is it your expectation that that level of of, of of damage to a company that's not complying will be enough to ensure compliance? It's meaningful accountability. You've got to follow the rules uh, and failure to do so would lead to these significant fines, the strongest amongst the G7. And it sends a very clear signal that uh, we take privacy very seriously. And it's good not only for uh, consumers, uh, this, uh, this accountability mechanism, but it's good for companies as well. Uh, this legislation creates predictability, it creates a clear framework for them to operate within, uh, they can make the business investments, uh, and companies are becoming more and more digital. And so uh, the, these uh, accountability mechanisms provides them the ability to make uh, investments in this new data and digital driven economy. Uh, which it will help with their economic recovery going forward. All right. Uh, Minister Baines, uh, good to talk to you this evening. We'll watch how this uh, legislation makes its way through the uh, legislative process. Uh, thanks for giving us your uh, perspective tonight. Well, thanks very much for having me on.
Well, Canada's Information Commissioner says the National Police Force is failing Canadians when it comes to providing access to information. And she says the RCMP needs an urgent change of course. She has lots of criticism as well for the Cabinet Minister who oversees the RCMP, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair. Information Commissioner Carolyn Menard joins me now. Uh, Madam Commissioner, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me today about this special examination of the RCMP. It's uh, good to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Look, the RCMP is supposed to uphold the law in this country, and you describe the backlog of access to information requests uh, in front of the National Police Force as shocking. Uh, why is it shocking? Well, it's it's over 4,000 complaints uh, re requests that have not been responded uh, and is still in their backlog. 92% of those are not uh, are out of time. Uh, I don't know if Canadians know, but uh, under the Access uh, to Information Act uh, in Canada, we the institutions have 30 days to respond to requests. Mm -hmm. So that means that in more than 92% of those cases. Uh, Canadians have not respond, have not received their response in that 30 days. What, what does it tell you about the commitment of the RCMP to follow the requirements of the access to information law? Well, I was surprised to, to see that when I got here, uh, when I was appointed two and a half years ago, I was told that that was a concern from our office already. I met with Commissioner Lucky. She was new at her job as well, so we discussed the uh, concerns. I was hoping that, yes, as a police uh, enforcement uh, agency, they were going to be uh, enforcing the uh, Access to Information Act as well. Uh, we noticed that the, the changes were not being made as quickly as we were hoping. Uh, I was hoping that the investigation was going to give them some tips of what to change, what to work on. Um, and as you can see, uh, the response was not um, as expected. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to dig into that in, in just a moment here. But in, in your report today, you, I mean, you gave a recent example of how the RCMP handles some of these access to information requests. You looked at the mass shooting in Nova Scotia and the RCMP's response uh, to the request for documents on that, where they initially said, oh, we, we don't have any. And then there were all kinds of documents. So what did, what did you learn from that, looking at that example? Well, there's a there's a lot of issues, uh, and one of the problem is that the analysts dealing with access requests are not uh, familiar with the department itself. So they don't know, first of all, where to go. Uh, they don't ask the right questions. They don't challenge the response that they're receiving uh, in, a, in a request like this when uh, we know there's going to be documents. You need somebody who's very confident and can go back and say there's no way that there's no response. <laughs> there's, there must be documents. So you need that challenge function. We have also a very uh, old system where I was explaining in my report uh, the system is uh, almost like uh, it's, it's archaic and uh, they can only scan eight pages at a time. It crashes all the time. Uh, the poor people working in those units are, uh, are kind of left on their own. Uh, they don't have enough resources. They need. They definitely need a leader right. that's going to pr uh, provide them with their resources um, on on all basics. Well, I think and, that, I think uh, that's an important point you make that the, these this this kind of process is a top down process, right? It's a leadership driven process if if you're going to uh, comply and you're supposed to comply uh, with the law on access to information. I think what's most glaring in the report today is that not only is there a failure to comply and perhaps a lack of effort to, re it's almost an outright refusal uh, to commit to your recommendations. Uh, what do you make of that response from the RCMP? Well, what I, I, I felt was that it was uh, a response where it was very complacent. They were uh, accepting the statute quo. They were accepting that uh, it was an issue and that they could do just little things at a time, uh, where what I was asking is big changes, uh, big 
big plans, uh, targeted uh, changes, and timely, uh, you know, with a, with the time attached to it. Mm -hmm. Right now, all I was told is uh, they knew what the issues were and they were working on them. Not not really what I was expected. You also singled out the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, for criticism as well. How how's the minister responded to your recommendations for change? Does he seem as disinterested as the RCMP is? Well, during the investigation, this is not the first time. The special report is at the end, completely at the end of the investigation. So they already receive an initial report, a special, uh, a final report, and that, and then the special, a special report is kind of a third time where they they hear about my recommendations. Uh, during the investigation, I was not receiving as well the the responses I was expecting of a minister. Uh, there was some plan being, uh, you know, they they said they were they were going to be working on it, but not really with specific plans. This morning I got a call from him and looks like uh, things are moving. Uh, so I'm happy at least that the special report had that uh, reaction to it. Oh, so it's out, it's out in public now and now people want to make change. Uh, everybody's interested in moving forward now. Uh, okay, so uh, just quickly on this, you've pr proposed a number of recommendations for change here. So uh, what I want to know and what Canadians want to know, I think, is what, what powers do you have to force that change? Well, unfortunately, at, at this point, for a systemic investigation, which I initiated myself, uh, the special report is pretty much at the end of my jurisdiction. So I, I, I submitted it to the parliamentary so that they can help me uh, make you know changes as a government. Uh, but what I will do and what I can do is continue to investigate specific and individual complaints, uh, use my powers that I have under the Act, which now includes uh, order-making powers, and continue to force institutions uh, to uh, oblige, uh, like respect their obligations under the Act. Okay, we'll continue to follow the story. Uh, Information Commissioner uh, Caroline May uh, Maynard, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bye. That's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching. See you next time.